As we talk about Satan, C.S. Lewis, some of you know C.S. Lewis. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, which have been turned into some pretty cool movies. Uh, since he died in the 60s, actually died on the same day John F. Kennedy did. So a little point of trivia there. Uh, since C.S. Lewis passed away, he still sells one million copies of his books a year. The only author ever in, in human history to do that. So still, he was way ahead of his time back in the 60s over in England. He wrote a little book called The Screw Tape Letters. And in that little book, it's, it's it's a fictional story of, of one, an older demon to a younger demon, and the older demon is coaching fictionally the younger demon on how to trip Christians up. It's a very insightful book on how Satan works. The very beginning of the book, though, in the kind of the preface, he, he throws out um, some two general errors. When we start talking about Satan and the demonic world, there's two general errors that we can end up on, and he calls the first one disbelief. I would add the word apathy. So in other words, when we begin to mention Satan and demons, as soon as you hear we're talking about that this morning, some of you are like, oh, come on. I mean, m- many of us are, uh, or some of us would say, I'm all about the here and the now, the material world, the physical world, what I can control, what I can touch, what I can see. And uh, really there's these things called demons and how they impact me, how? Or others may have grown up in church. You may be a person who says, I've grown up going to a church, or maybe I've seen someone on TV talk about demons or, I've caught a YouTube clip or I've heard some things and I generally know they're there, but we don't really live with it in a way that deeply impacts our life. So I would call that apathy because we know they're there, but what do I really do with it day in and day out? Pretty much nothing. So I would call that apathy. He, C.S. Lewis says the second error that we make is we can run to the other end, which is this incredibly unhealthy interest. I mean, that's all we want to read about, study about. We, we just soak up everything we can. And that can even lead, the word I would add to it, well, that can lead to terror. I mean, just full-blown terror in a life. And, and uh, we're drawn to that. Now, as I look at these two errors, the one that I personally land in for me is that first one. And we're going to talk a lot about that first one. Uh, the reason I land in that one, I just want to kind of share the journey that even led to today's message, how God's been working in my own life. And it's been really kind of cool to see. We have as a church, a reading plan. Uh, we encourage everyone to be reading the Bible for themselves, engaging God and his spirit by the word of God in the word of God day in and day out for themselves. And so we put a reading plan together. If you don't have one or you'd like to join us, be, you can always jump in. You can find one out in the foyer. There's also journals down here. They are yours. We normally um, charge for them. We've got a bunch left over. We just want them to be used. So if you'd like one, grab one afterwards. Anyway, we have this reading plan. And in April, we've been talking about the promises of God. We talked about one of the promises is forgiveness. And we've been reading about that. And this verse showed up in our quiet time. It was in Acts chapter 10. And I'm not going to get into the context of this and get into who's writing. I'll just, I want to catch one phrase out of it that, that deeply challenged me in my quiet time and kind of has been working all the way up and even to this week in this message. It says how God, this is a guy by the name of Peter describing the life of Jesus. It says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he, referring to Jesus, went around, now this is describing Jesus' life, doing good and healing all who were under the power of the, say it together with me, the devil. Okay, all under the power of the devil because God was with him. Now, the heart, the reason we put that reading in our journal was to talk about forgiveness. Some other verses in this talk about God's promised forgiveness. But this phrase just came full off the pages at me. I journaled it that day, and here's what I wrote in my journal. I wrote down, I wrote, how much credit does the devil get in the context of my life and ministry? 
How about you? How much credit does Satan get and his demons in your life, in the context of your life and the ministry that you live and the things that you do day in and day out? And when I really began to think about, I said, you know what? I don't even think about him. I hardly even talk about him. I've certainly never preached on him. (laughs) And I began to think about it. Why is that? He's very real. The scriptures tell us he's very real. The scriptures tell us, we're going to look at a verse this morning. It says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but much of my success in life has to do with what I can't even see, touch, feel, and and comprehend at times. So why is it that, that Jesus came to free those who were under the power of the devil, what, why doesn't Satan get a lot of work in my life? Now, the first answer I've been journaling and kind of processing and is this, is, is kind of my personality, and some of you may relate to this. I'm more cerebral, more stoic. I mean, I'm very stoic to the very core. People, um, you know, emotionalism and all that, I get a little nervous around. I'm cerebral. I'm a thinker. I study. I read. And here's the big thing about me. I plan and then execute the plan. I mean, come on, what more is there to life than that? Put a plan together, work the plan, use the wisdom and the brain that God's given you. And just let's go at this. When I come to meetings, to me, when I come to a meeting, it's time to work hard and make it happen. I don't stop. I'm not one of these guys who will stop and let's pray for an hour to figure out the answer. I'm like, listen, God's given us a brain. So let's use that brain and let's walk through it. Now, I don't deny Satan. I don't deny the Holy Spirit, but I just, it's kind of my personality lends me that way. But I really thought about it. No, that's still not the real answer. (laughs) That's still not the real answer. That plays into it. But the real answer is I'm uncomfortable with it. The minute I get into context where people begin to start talking about casting out demons or speaking in tongues, you may have heard that, or faith healings and, and all this spirit world stuff, I just get a little tense in the shoulders. Now, when I preach and prepare my messages, I carry a sword, a physical sword. I've had one time a guy came to my door. He knocked on my door. I opened the door and I didn't realize I still had holding my sword. And he about, I think he was going to go in his pants right then and there. And I said, don't worry. I'm just working on my message. He goes, working on your message? What are you doing with it in there? So again, I get the reality of this, but it still makes me uncomfortable. Let me share a story that maybe help you maybe kind of relate to this, um, this side of it. Because I think it's important to understand why we push back a little bit on Satan's and demons to really help us embrace the work that he does in our life. I grew up in a church. I didn't like going there. I didn't want to be there, but I was made to be there. And there was a church here in Lancaster County that preached very aggressively against what has been called the charismatic movement. For those of you that aren't familiar with the church world, the charismatic movement is simply what would be faith healing. Have you ever see Benny Hinn? Some of you, the greatest context, Benny Hinn on TV, you know, a guy or a girl comes up, they have some kind of illness and disease, and he heals them instantaneously right then and there. That would be a faith healing. Um, casting out demons. It would be a thing called speaking in tongues. What speaking in tongues is, is um, it's simply a, I would start speaking a language that's unknown to me. In other words, I didn't study it in school. I didn't work get with Rosetta Stone. It just starts coming out of me, and it's for the advancement of, um, again, that's tongues. Uh, So charismatics would believe, and the movement would hold to all of that as very relevant for today. Now, I grew up in a church where that has no place anywhere in ministry, and they just preached very heavily and passionate against it. Now, I didn't really care, honestly. (laughs) I I was just there listening, and it really didn't impact me. But 
it, it played a role, as I found out later. I then hit age 19, going on 20. I'm out of high school. I'm not in college yet. I chose to take some time out of college and try and figure life out. I'm, I'm struggling through life. I'm at the gym one day, and I've told this story before, so bear with me if you've heard it, but it'll lead to this point. I'm at the gym one day, and there's, I'm there, I'm in, kind of in the mirror. I'm doing some curls, and there's a voice behind me, and I look up and look in the mirror, and there is this really attractive lady kind of standing behind me talking to me. And I'm like, is she talking to me? I was kind of stunned. And then she says, hey, and she starts making this conversation. Long story short, she asked me to go to a Bible study on Friday night with her. Now, I missed the Bible study part. All I heard was go with her on Friday night. And I'm like, this is all good. We can do this. I mean, I'm looking back and thinking, it's the best looking girl that's ever asked me out. So we're going to have a fun time with this. We get to the Bible study. She preps me by saying, hey, this is a small group of people, usually any, anywhere from 12 to 20 people, kind of love a house church thing. And um, tonight, tonight we have uh, a special missionary here. And I'm thinking, okay, whatever, just, just have fun and get home and, and we'll have more fun. And so, she's, so we sit down in this group and this missionary begins talking. And right away I got tense and then I just was like, whoa. She began saying, here's her first statement was, we should be so full of the spirit, she said, that when people walk through our shadow, they should pass out. I'm thinking, Wow. And I'm getting nervous, uncomfortable, to say the least. And then she starts talking about the dark forces of hell that we're battling. And I'm thinking, come on, lady, what is your... And then she tells this story where a family came to her with a little boy who didn't have a foot. There was some accident where he lost his foot. And she told this family, you should have so much faith that when you go put a shoe on, believe that God will restore the foot and the foot will come back. So lo and behold, they go and put a shoe on and, and take the shoe off then and there's his foot. And she's telling this story. And then she leads to this, this the, the, everyone in the room's just like, whoa, oh, wow. And they're just all into it, except me. And they're, they're just getting, and then she says, if you want to be more full of the spirit like that, stand to your feet. And everyone, whoosh, right up, except me. I feel all 40 eyes now staring. And I'm thinking, oh my, I look over and the girl that I was with stood up. So I think, well, she stood up. I guess I should too. So I kind of stand up, very reluctant, and pushed my chair back and stepped out of the circle. She comes around to every person. I'm watching. I didn't shut my eyes. Everyone else has their eyes shut and they're doing this and humming and all and all kinds of things. And I'm just feeling weird. I'm like, I just want to get out of here. I'm trying to look at the door. I can't quite get to the door because it's blocked with this group. And I can't. And so I'm trying to make my exit strategy. And she's hitting people in the head. There's people falling down. There's, I mean, all kinds of stuff going on. I'm thinking this is, and then she comes around to me and she grabs me and she starts praying. And here was a prayer. God, you've revealed to me that this is a troubled soul. And I'm like, lady, this is where I get skeptical. I'm like, lady, God didn't reveal that to you. Good common sense revealed that to you. Good common sense says this guy doesn't want to be here. Just look at him. I mean, you can tell. You don't need the spirit of God to tell you that. So I'm, I'm at this point, I am, he, she says, I feel the tension in his neck. I'm like, yeah, you feel the tension. So then she hits me. And I'm like, okay. You do that one more time, you're going to be laid out in the spirit. I mean, I was like, I was not keen with this. So then she grabs me in the face like this and starts blowing. And I'll tell you, here's the secret I learned. You want to slay someone in the spirit? Eat lots of garlic. Her breath was horrible. I'm thinking, no wonder people are passing out. Your, your breath is... So I'm not budging. And so she, she prays again and prays harder. Then this gibberish... Stuff starts coming out of her mouth, which I learned later is, I, you know, didn't know what it was, never around us, is tongues. 
And she's just praising this and it's on. I'm like, lady, let me alone. So she finally finishes with me, goes back around with everyone else again, says amen. Everyone sits down and it's like, I, I didn't know. It was, everyone's going, oh. It's like after I have a good bowl of ice cream, you know, or something like that. Everyone's just like, oh. I'm like, what is this? And so I, they all finished their ooing and aahing. And I turned and said to the girl I came with, I'll see you in the car. And I got out of there as fast as I could. Very, very very uncomfortable. To this day, when I get in settings where this kind of stuff goes on, I still get very uncomfortable. I'm not saying what's right and wrong. I'm just saying I'm describing my experience. Um, I get to the car. She then comes out. We're driving home. There's a lot of silence. She could tell. She knew that maybe she overstepped her bounds and brought me into something. Maybe it wasn't a real cool idea. Uh, And she finally says to me, so what didn't you like about it? And I just said, it was unbiblical. Now, mind you, at this point, I am a immoral young man who's having all kinds of doing all kinds of things and living the way this Bible would call sin. And I didn't know why I threw that word out. So she just says to me, well, what passage would you use passage? I, I, so I'm wondering, I don't want to look dumb. So I'm sitting there digging. Okay. Think, think, think. What did that guy, that pastor growing up, what did he say? I'm like Corinthians. Now there's two Corinthians in the Bible. Now I don't know that. I just say Corinthians. And she's like, well, first or second. I'm like, first. And she goes, you mean chapter 14? Yeah. Chapter 14. So we pull up outside and she says, we get to her house now and I'm dropping her off. And I'm like, I, I had other plans for tonight, but they're long gone. I don't even want to do, I don't even get you out of this car. And we're, um, and she says, well, how about we go out next Friday night? And I'm like, I'm not going back there. I said, if that's your idea of fun, she goes, how about the Olive Garden? And we'll talk about first Corinthians 14. I'm like, okay another shot at this. So I say, okay. Now I go home and that week, that week I had my nose stuck in first Corinthians 14 and every other chapter around it. I am reading and reading first time ever in my life. I genuinely, sincerely sought out something in the Bible for myself. It's crazy, crazy how God works. Go back. We had a long discussion, long story short. I still didn't buy into what some of the things she was saying, but God used it in my life to lead me to an understanding of who he is and, and his word. But still to this day, I get very uncomfortable. Now, some of you may relate to that. Some of you may not quite be that extreme, but you get around, you start hearing people talk about the spirit world. You start hearing people talk about the Holy Spirit or Satan's or demons or this unseen world. It gets us a little, you know, you kind of hear the twilight music going off. Maybe some of you in your head and you get a little nervous and, and it's just, I'm not too sure about this. Um, so between my personality, between my background and my experience, I was like, eh. then there's another one that I think kicks in for most of us in this room that makes it even harder for us. And that is our culture in general. What I believe about our culture, it erases the dread and horror of hell and the spirit world by giving us the dread and horror of hell as entertainment. Now, when I said this first service, I saw a lot of heads going, yep, but here's the deal. All of us fall prey to this. All of us. There isn't a one of us that's immune to this. You say, come on, Adam. Yeah, here, here. My kids love Mario Kart. Those of you who say, what's Mario Kart? It's, it's with a Nintendo. It's with a game system called Nintendo. You hold a controller. It's completely wireless, and it, it senses your movement, and then it adjusts on the screen accordingly. Now, there's these little carts, like let go carts that drive around. You have a monkey, um, uh, Diddy Kong and Donkey Kong, and you got another little guy named Yoshi who's a little dinosaur, and you got Mario who's a plumber, and his brother Luigi who's also a plumber, and it's this crane, strange, crazy world. And, and you drive these carts. Now, you throw lightning bolts and zap people. 
people, or you throw red shells and blow them up, or you throw green shells and all this stuff. It's, you know, some of you are going, and you play this? And it sounds like something I had in my hippie days on drugs. I mean, but it's, it's, it's the, this game. Now, what I learned when my kids were young, and they still struggle with this, is when they would get the guy in front of them, they, they'd drive in their cart and they'd throw their lightning bolt. and they'd, Here's what they would say. I killed him. And I looked at him like, you what? I killed him. Well, let's not say that. How about we got them? Well, why, what, why, Dad? I mean, I, didn't I kill him? Well, no, you turn the game off and turn it back on. There, Diddy Kong is right back. I mean, he's there. And Yoshi, he's, he's pretty good too. He's going to keep on going in, 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 in uh, the pixel land here. You didn't kill them. You got them. But we have made, and now you take gaming and you say, that's child's play. You get into Call of Duty. You get into some of the first-person shooter games where you legitimately on the screen are pulling a trigger that is watching someone in front of you die, and it's entertainment. Death and destruction has become our entertainment. Or a month or so ago, I went to see Iron Man 3. Now, some of you may have seen it too. Guys, those in the room, what, how do you judge a good movie? It's not good until what? You don't want to sit with sappy romance and cry. You want to see things blow up, right? Iron Man 3. I'm not going to state my opinion on whether it's good or not, but it's a movie about good versus evil, and it's got redemptive qualities to it, no doubt. But it is a movie where you're sitting and watching for entertainment. Things all around you just explode and blow up, and people die. It's death and destruction laid right out for entertainment in front of us. And it desensitizes us, I believe, to the realities and the horrors of hell and death and dying and everything around it. I have a song I want to read you. I'm not going to play, the, play it. Make some of you probably, um, <laughs> you're going to make your toes curl. It's by a hard rock. I mean, this is a hard group. I, I want to say this, the best of my knowledge, this group doesn't love Jesus. Best of my knowledge, this is a pretty vulgar group, actually. Uh, the first time I heard this song on the radio was maybe six, seven years ago. The minute I heard it, I said, it describes this point beautifully. It's the group Tool. Some of you know the group Tool, right? Some of you in that scene know them um, and would verify it's a pretty vulgar band. But they sung a song about six, seven years ago called Vicarious. And I want to read the lyrics to you. I think they expose this reality beautifully. Beautifully. It says this, eyes on the TV, because tragedy thrills me. Whatever flavor it happens to be like, killed by the husband, drowned by the ocean, shot by his own son. She used the poison in his tea and kissed him goodbye. That's my kind of story. It's no fun till someone dies. Don't we love it? NCIS? How many NCIS fans do we have here? Law and Order, SVU. You go on down a list through these things. What, it, what draws us to these stories? Yes, evil is is defeated in almost all of them. Yes, the good guy wins, and that makes for a great story. But what we are consuming is death and destruction, and we love it. Now, this isn't a message on culture and all that stuff, so let's finish reading the song. Don't look at me like I'm a monster. Frown out your own face, but with the other, stare like a junkie into the TV. Stare like a zombie while the mother holds her child, watches him die, hands to the sky, crying, why, oh, why? Because I need to watch things die from a distance. Vicariously, I live while the whole world dies. You all need it too. Don't lie. Why can't we just admit it? We won't give pause until the blood is flowing. Neither the, now listen to this. Neither the brave nor bold, the writers of stories sold. We won't give pause until the blood is flowing. A great story always has tragedy at its, at its core and conflict. And 
I need to watch things die from a good safe distance. Vicariously, I live while the whole world dies. Part vampire, part warrior, carnivore and voyeur, stare at the transmitter, sing to the death rattle. Now, then he gets, he goes, becomes a theologian on us. Credulous at best, your desire to believe in angels in the hearts of men. So he says, it's kind of, we all want to believe that we're really good people. We want to believe that we're all wired and created good. But he says, you know, come on, guys. And he says this, pull your head on out of your hippie haze and give a listen. Shouldn't have to say it all again. The universe is hostile, so impersonal, devour to survive. So it is, so it always has been. We all feed on tragedy. It's like blood to a vampire. Vicariously, I live while the whole world dies. Much better you than I. When I heard that song the first time. I was working in student ministry with teenagers, and I'm like, they just painted the reality of her world beautifully, better than I could as a preacher and a pastor. Beautifully. We love it. You know, I, I find it so much so that I remember when I was a kid, I would read the book of Revelation and I'd be like, whoa, wow, look, whoa. Today, what I find when young people read the book of Revelation, there is not all in wonder and just dread at what God is about to do. Do you know why? They're like, oh, yeah, I saw that in the movies last week. Oh, come on. That's all you got, God? I mean, uh, when I watched, it's, it does, it, it's like we see it now. The NBA Finals this past week as I was watching that, I've got to sit with my little boy. I've got to have the remote in hand because even those 30-second commercials for some of those horror movies are just mind-blowing. But we hunger for it. Horror movies are one of the leading revenue makers in the movie industry today. We drink blood. And I think what it's done to us, it's desensitized us to the reality of the demon, demonic world. And here's how the demonic world works. It says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I mean, this is the number one thing Satan does. He says, I want glory. And he says, if I can't get it, then God's not going to get it either. So I'm going to make sure that my number one thing I'm going to do is pull a blinder over your eyes so that you cannot see Jesus, who is the image of God. He says, I'm not, I, and then he goes on. Here's another one. John chapter, you know, this is written to some people who would be very religious, extremely religious. They would love their Bible. They would be very passionate. They would be here singing songs this morning with their hands in the air. And he says this to him, you belong to your father's, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning not holding to the truth for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's number one is this, I'm going to blind you and I'm going to lie to you. I'm going to convince you that God is not good, that God is a sham, that God doesn't love, that God's not for you. And I'm going to twist. And a lot of times it doesn't come at us with a hardcore full-blown 180 lie. It just takes a truth and twist it, cocks it just a hair and then serves it up on a platter from a stage. So that's, and we love it. He says, but he's a liar. And the final one I would say is this John 10, 10, the thief referring to Satan. This is Jesus talking comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. Isn't that some of the movies we watch when we call it entertainment, we have become desensitized. I believe in our culture to death and destruction. It should just make us aghast. Just be Wow. Satan loves death and destruction. It is his whole MO in life is I am here to make your life miserable. And he's learned in America. You know, how he makes our life miserable in America. He's given us what we want. 
And we drink it in and we have fun and we have passion and we have excitement and we're destroying our lives. He says that Satan has come to steal, to kill and destroy. See, the demonic world is very real, incredibly powerful and very destructive. And I'll tell you what, this week in my, is that quiet time started back in April, kind of led up to this week, kind of culminated in my office. I'll be honest, I'll just confess to you. I got down and I'll, I think some of us need to do the same thing. I got down on my face. I don't do this a lot in my message sermon prep. I laid the sword down. I got down in my face and I actually wept. And I said, God, please forgive me for not taking this thing seriously. I walk around with a sword. I know it's war. I know it's, I know it's legit. But deep in my heart, do I really sincerely, how much credit am I really giving to Satan? And how much, how often do I really get out of bed in the morning and say, you know what? Today I go to battle against the dark forces of hell. Seldom do I do that, but it's very real, very powerful and very destructive. But here's the cool thing. I love the word, but in scripture, it's one of my favorite words in scripture. Every time you see it, it's usually going to say, here's an ugly truth, but, and here it comes. Here's the, but we have the weapons to win the battle. You have the weapons. Turn with me in your Bible. One of the ones I threw a lot up on the screen. I want to show you one actually with your own eyes. Um, turn with me to, to First Peter. If you're not familiar with your Bible, you're going to find this one towards the very back. Not all the way to the back, but you're going to run across probably the larger book you'll see there. If you're new to the Bible, again, welcome. Glad you're here. You're going to see a book called Hebrews. Page through Hebrews, you're going to see a smaller book called James, and you're going to run into some of these books, First and Second Peter. There are two of them there. Find First Peter. If you don't have a Bible or you don't have a smartphone to find it on your smartphone, see me afterwards. I would love to put a Bible in your hands. First Peter chapter 5, look at verse 8. It's one of these classic passages on Satan. I just really want us to look with our own eyes. It says this. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, here it is, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is here again. Death and destruction have come to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, verse 9, this is a key word this morning. This is, we're going to look at this in another passage in a minute. But this word is crucial. Resist him. Turn to the person beside you just say resist him. Resist him. This is a crucial word. This is a big, this is a, let this one lock into your mind. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Now, what I want to do with this passage is I want to kind of expose some, what I would call misconceptions. that I think you can see from this passage. I believe one of the things I get a little nervous of Satan too, I'll be honest, this comes into why I get a little apathetic with this is because I am fearful that we give him a little too much credit. Okay, the first thing I would like to just say is Satan is not omnipresent. Now, you say, what is that? That's a big word. That's, that's a theological concept that we use for God. God is everywhere present, or I think it's better stated everywhere is in the presence of God. That is not true of Satan. Satan is a created being. And sometimes we give Satan God-like status. There's only one Satan and he can only be one place at one time. And he's prowling around. I love that he's prowling. He's moving. And I think probably right now he's not here in this room. He's probably right now somewhere in the Middle East would be my guess. I just, if I had to take a stab in the dark, I'm going to guess in the Middle East with some terrorist. Some big name guy who can really do some serious destruction. Not a God. Now he's not probably not hanging out here with Adam Nagel. Now, 
Though I say that, he has his demonic forces, and we aren't going to get into this this morning, but there are fallen angels that work along with him as demons who are present with us. But I just think it's really important that we don't give Satan godlike status. I think it's far too often we do. The other thing, Satan is not looking for a fight. I cannot stress this one enough. The word resist, we're going to look at this in a minute. We're going to look at another promise. When you resist him, he's out of here. He doesn't want to fight. He's trying to take you down without a fight. When, it's, when the lion devours, when, it, when the lion in, the, in Africa comes up upon a herd of um, gazelle hopping through the, the grasslands, what gazelle does he bring down? The weak one, right? The one that can't fight, the one that can't kick back. And Satan is walking around looking for that one to bring down. The other thing I would say is this, you're not alone. When that gazelle gets alone, that gazelle's in big trouble, right? You've all seen the National Geographic films, you know, right? You see that horrible, gruesome picture where the gazelle's trying to hop through. He's out there all by himself, and, and it's, it's over, right? One of the greatest lies Satan tells us when you face trouble, when you face hardship, when you face temptation is, I've, I'm all alone. No one gets me. No one understands me. No one's ever been through this. Hogwash. You're facing nothing new under the sun. And I love this text, not only here in this body, but all over the world, people are facing this same stuff. You're not alone. And the minute we begin to think we're alone, we're in big trouble. You've got to rally together if you're going to, if you're going to do this thing well. And the fourth thing I'd say is Satan does not cause me to sin. You don't directly see this one in this text, but I want to take us to another text again on the screen because um, this one, Satan doesn't cause me to sin. Here's James chapter one. When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their, say the word with me, own. Does it say by Satan's? Doesn't say it. It says by your own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. We give Satan far too much. Satan made me do it. No, he didn't. You don't need a lot of help to sin. Okay. Let's just face it. It's kind of a proud thought to think I need help to sin. I'm a sinner. I don't need a lot of help. Satan probably baits the hook. This is a kind of a, this, this hunting fishing term here is, is in the original language. It's like this, this hook that's, that's baited with a worm. So he probably baits the hook and he lay, he knows what's going to get me. And he's dragging along. Come on, Adam, bite the hook, bite the hook. But it's me. It's, it's me, myself and I that will actually take the hook. Now, here's the thing I want to point out with this in our battle against Satan and evil and darkness. Temptation is not sin. This is huge to me. I talk to people that have wrecked with guilt. Notice it says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to what? Where does sin show up in the passage? It's after I've fallen to the temptation. After I've made the, not only this, oh, I want to do that. I want to eat that extra bowl of ice cream. No, it's the sin is then eating the ice cream when I know that I shouldn't have. So desire has conceived and it's give birth to sin. When it's full grown, it brings, there it is, death and destruction. Satan's all about it. So he works with us to bring us to sin, but he doesn't make me sin. Now, the other thing I want to point out in first Timothy, if you have an NIV Bible, God doesn't place this here. The human writers do. But if you look up at the heading of chapter five, what does it say? Who is this chapter written to? Two elders. Do you see it? 
This is written chapter five to the leaders of the church. He says, listen, guys, get this thing together. Stand up and resist Satan. He also, then, then if you notice in the middle, if you notice in your middle, it's, it's kind of looks, it's, it sets out all by itself in verse five. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want to resist Satan. You've got to stay humble. First Timothy three, six, there's another verse again. Sorry, I'm just throwing a lot at you. That's why I put a lot of them up on the screen. First Timothy three, six, again, written in the context to leaders talking about a leader's character. It says this, he must not be a recent convert. In other words, if you're going to be an elder in a church, you can't have just come to Jesus last week. It doesn't work or last year. He, if he, if that has the case, he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as who? Why? Why'd Satan end up who he is? It's because he was proud. He was proud. He says, God, I know what I'm doing. I want to be in charge. And leaders in the church, when we begin to get conceited and get our heads get a little bigger, I mean, you're going to end up in the same place that Satan does, and it gets pretty ugly. Now, turn with me. Turn with me to James. If you're in 1 Peter, just go back a few pages. James chapter 4. Back meaning towards the front of your Bible. James chapter four. Again, I, we could take any one of these passages and go with great depth, but it's going to kind of give you a kind of a feel of who Satan is. But this one here, James chapter four looks very similar to first Peter five. I'm going to pick up in verse six, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, here's the exact quote from first Peter five, same context, very same context is about the proud. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse seven, submit yourselves then to God. Here's our word again. Remember, remember in first Peter, resist the devil. Okay. Turn to the person around. You just, I want to keep, it's kind of warm in here, isn't it? Let's keep us awake. Go ahead and turn to the person around. Say, resist the devil. Some of you are like, this guy's crazy. Um, resist the devil and he will what? Look at the promise. What's he going to do? It's a promise. You resist him. He turns and goes. He does not want to fight. He's a wuss. He's a full blown wuss. He's powerful. He's aggressive. He's ugly. He's nasty, but he doesn't want to fight. He's out of here. Now, verse eight, it continues. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Now, some of you stop and say, no, wait a minute, Adam. Isn't, don't you preach that God is always with you? Yeah, I do. But it doesn't mean he's always close to you relationally. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you, but it doesn't mean you have a rich, meaningful relationship with him. It just doesn't. If you've got known sin in your life and you have not resisted the devil and your life is a wreck and it's fallen apart, maybe no one else knows about it, but internally, you know, things are not good. You are not close to God relationally. You may be a Christian. He isn't going to abandon you. But I love this. Resist the devil, come near to God, and he is going to come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You know, Pastor Chris stood up here last week and talked about the reality that we're sinners, and we don't like to see that. We run and hide from that one. Like, I'm not a sinner. I'm, I'm, I mean, who, who wouldn't want to love me, right? If you didn't hear the message, I encourage you to check it out online. 
But I love this picture of humility. And right in the middle of it then is this aggressive language of turn your laughter to mourning. You know, one of the greatest ways to humble yourself is to stand before God and recognize I have sinned against you. Oh, sure. I may have said a nasty word to my wife, but I haven't just sinned against my wife. I have sinned against a holy, righteous, magnificent God. And when we can begin to comprehend the reality that I am not God and I fall quite short, but in his grace, he's moved in my direction through the person of Jesus. I come out of hiding. I embrace that. And I humble myself. I get on my knees if you need to. I cry. I don't just make light of my sin. It is a serious business. When I can, I'm staying in a humble position. What I'm doing is I'm submitting to God. I'm resisting the devil and he will flee. I want to end with one final passage. Turn with me to Ephesians. If you're in James, keep paging towards the front of your Bible. Now, this passage, we could have spent the entire message on. I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to do this passage justice. I want to state that right up front. Some of you are going to get a little upset because I'm just going to skim through this passage. It's not because I'm not deep. Number one, it's because the clock is ticking. Number two, I've got to hold your attention, and some of you are already struggling with that one. So we're going to just, I want to just hit this for one primary purpose, but this is a classic passage. Maybe take it this week in your quiet time, unpack it, dig through it. This one's got some real cool stuff in it with Satan, but here is how we resist the devil. You say, resist the devil. Here's how we do it. Verse 10 of chapter six of, of Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand. The word stand shows up four times in this passage. Take your stand against the devilish scheme. So stand up in God's power. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The battle that you fight, you cannot see. That's what makes the spiritual life so tricky. You cannot see it. It's going on inside of you. It's waging all around you. It's happening right now as we speak, but we cannot see it. Therefore, verse 13, put on the full armor of God so that when, circle the word when, it doesn't say if, it says when, you will be attacked. So that when the day of evil comes, it will come. You may be able to stand your ground. Here's this word stand again. And after you have done everything to stand, look at all these stand firm. Now here's the, here's the armor with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. You know why that's so crucial? Why he starts out with that in that day, that armor was held together by the, all those pieces came together with the belt and notice Satan is a liar. If you're going to beat back Satan, you've got to hold it all together with truth. Tell yourself the truth, which we struggle to do at times. And he goes on with the breastplate of righteousness, the end of verse 14, and with the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up your shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now this next one, take the helmet of salvation, the helmet, you know, you take a headshot, you're done. You, you have your arm hacked off in battle. You can keep going. I've seen some pretty heroic movies where someone got a, something stuck in them and they kept going, right? You can do it. It's hard, but you can do it. You take a headshot, you're out of the game. 
So I love this, the importance of salvation, meaning take on the reality that I come to God alone by faith alone in Christ alone. I am saved by him, not by my works. Keep it securely planted on your head. And the sword of the spirit, the only offensive weapon that we have listed here is a sword. Pick it up, which is, he defines it, is the word of God. That's why, again, be reading the Bible for yourself. It's the only weapon that we really have here that's offensive. Now, verse 18, he kind of transitions. Here's another weapon that we have, but it's, it's kind of breaks the concept of the armor. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. Now, look at this. Don't just pray for yourself. Be alert for yourself. Take a stand, but pray for all the saints. Now, verse 19. Verse 19 is huge. Pray also for me that whatever, whenever I open my mouth, now keep in mind, this is the apostle Paul. He faced things that I hope I never have to deal with. He was a pretty brave dude. He was a tenacious dude. I would say he had some pretty strong courage, but he prays this, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will look at the word. I will what? Fearlessly. We've been talking about fear. Paul dealt with it. Paul struggled with it. He says, I want to fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it. Here it is again, fearlessly as I should. Here's the deal. What kind of soldier puts armor on and carries a weapon? You ever thought about this? I love running across soldiers when I'm out with my kids. I love it. We walk into Walmart and I love, I absolutely love men and women when I see them in their, in their kind of their, you know, their get up their, whether it's their cool blues with their, you know, I just love it or their camo stuff. And I love when my kids look at them, they look up to them and they say, wow. And I love to walk up to them and say, thank you for what you do. But you know what I notice about those soldiers who are on leave or whatever, why ever they're in Walmart? I don't know. You know what I notice about them? They don't have their Kevlar stuffed in their vest, do they? And they're not walking around with their AK-47. Why not? Why not? Because they're not on mission. What kind of soldier puts armor on? A soldier who's on mission. I think one of the reasons we struggle with our battle against Satan is because some of us aren't on mission. Paul, when he wraps this whole thing up, he says, please pray for me because I'm on mission. I am carrying out the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to see people come to know Jesus. Life is all about seeing the message of Jesus move forward in whatever I do, whether I'm a mom, whether I'm a nurse, whether I'm a carpenter, whether, whatever it is that I do in my day, I'm here to do a really good job at it and represent Jesus to the world. But I'm afraid too many of us just kind of get lax through our day. I'm just here. I'm just putting time in at the job. I'm just hanging out with my kids. We're on battle, in battle. And battle is ugly. It's gruesome. It's never pretty. If you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan or any movie like it, it's, re- it's a stark reminder that battle is ugly. And I'm not going to run in without being armed and protected. The Apostle Paul, the same guy who wrote this, I want to end with this passage and then do communion. Second Timothy, same, same guy, writes this says, for the spirit God gave us does not make us what? Get rid of the nightmares, guys. Get rid of them. If you are a Christian person, don't be timid. Don't shrink back. Take on the forces of evil. Stand up and resist. Submit yourselves to God. Do not be timid. But he, look what it says. It said he gives us a spirit of power, 
of love and of self-discipline. I love this, of self-discipline. You know why our culture is so good at, we turn our wants and our desires into deserved needs. And we hate the uncomfortable life. We're all about comfort. Keep my life comfortable. And it takes great discipline to deny myself the lesser pleasure to have the greater pleasure. And so I think Paul is saying, listen, it's don't be timid. You've got power. You've got love. You've got self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me. His Don't be afraid of me. He's writing to this young guy, Timothy. Don't be afraid of me. I know I'm in jail for this, but don't shrink back. Rather join with me in suffering for the gospel. That's why we need self-discipline. We got to push through this by the power of God. That is why I'm suffering as I am. This is verse 12. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know, and I'll catch this word. I know what? What's it say? Say it with me. I know whom I have believed. Do you know what some of us in the Christian culture, in the Christian world, in the church world, slip into that place? What? It's not about what you believe. It's about who you hold on to. It's about who you trust. It's about who you've given your life to. It's about who you're walking with in relationship as your closest friend. I could care less if you know this book inside and out. I could care less if you know all the orthodoxies and you can quote all the platitudes of scripture. That stuff's important. And it's crucial to understand to beat back Satan. And and that plays a part in the battle. But it's ultimately not the point of Christianity. Christianity says, listen, it's about who you believe. And who you believe is a man who came to this earth to represent God, who spread his arms apart and took nails for you and for me and shed his blood and broke his body, which we're about to commemorate in communion. And Christianity then is not about what, but it's about who. So we draw together as people to encourage one another, not to learn more. That's part of it. We draw together to encourage one another to say, trust God, hold on to him. He will not let you go. Satan is lying to you. God loves you. He will not forsake you. Draw close to him and he will draw close to you. It's who you believe, not what that will win the battle every single day. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, I love Paul's prayer. God, give us that same courage to pray. Help us to be fearless, to run into battle, to arm ourselves, to resist Satan, to stand up, to stand firm. God, it's so tricky though, especially God, I pray for those who've grown up in the church and have spent so much time listening to sermons and, and reading their Bible and studying and, and God, it's, it's, that stuff's so important. I don't want to downplay that. And you, you know how important that is to believe, right? But God, it's not just about what I believe. It's about who, it's about the relationship I have with you through Jesus. God, so may this be a meaningful time right now as we wrap this whole series up with communion, taking communion. Those of us who take it, who choose to take it, God, would it be meaningful to us as we just stop and reflect on the fact that I'm a sinner. May we come out of hiding. May we weep and we wail. And may we just say, God, forgive me. And thank you for the grace and mercy of Jesus who broke his body and shed his blood for me, for us, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.